How's everybody doing? Good, good, good to see you. Good to be back with you. Um, I have really enjoyed, uh, was here last week, just kind of uh, getting to experience worship, which was cool. And then the week before, it's been neat to hear Mark sharing about his dreams, about the Isaiah text the last couple of weeks. Really enjoyed that. Appreciate him kind of taking care of things while my family and I were on vacation. Uh, but it is, it's good to be back with you. Good to have uh, the chance to, to preach again. If you've got your Bible on you, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. Say hello to everybody watching along online as well, worshiping with us. Ephesians 2, 4 through 10 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me, if you would. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And uh, God, my uh, confession to you this morning is I, I feel weak, and uh, I want your strength. Uh, I believe the text tells us that your, your power is made perfect in our weakness, and so I'm praying that you'd move. I want somebody in this place to have an experience of you, uh, a fresh experience of your touch, a fresh experience of uh, your grace. Uh, I want somebody to walk out the doors today different than they came in, not because of anything that I said, but because of who you are and because you're just so clearly um, that good to us. Uh, move in our midst, speak through your word and mine as I try to share. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Uh, is there, guys, is there any way I get these lights off? They were off for the first one. Do we need them? There we go. Man, that's nice. I wish it was like that at home, like Alexa. Lots off. Um, I don't know if y'all know this about me or not, but uh, I, I'm a bit overweight, okay? And uh, I mean, the black kind of hides it, I get it. But one of the downsides uh, to carrying a few extra pounds is uh, going to uh, amusement parks. Uh, I, I don't fit on every amusement park ride. I mean, it just, it is what it is. You know, I have to be selective about the ones that I get on. And uh, Bethany tells me that it's because uh, I have really broad shoulders, but I think it's because I like little Debbie cakes, okay? So I get that. But about three years ago, uh, we were at Dollywood, and we were, uh, as a family, we were trying to ride the Mystery Mine, and that's my wife's favorite ride. And so uh, we go to get on the Mystery Mine, and I'm like getting strapped in, and I pull the shoulder thing down uh, on top of me, and there's two workers there. There's one worker working behind a desk that's a guy, and he's like the controller dude. He determines whether or not the ride goes or not. And then there's a lady who is just walking up and down the rows, and she's like the safety person. She's the one like tugging on everybody's safety gear to make sure that it's latched. Well, when she gets to my row, um, the safety lady, she, uh, she looks at me, 
and then she looks back at the control guy, and then she looks back at me, and she just shakes her head. And then the guy uh, behind the control, he shakes his head. And I'm thinking, that can't be a good sign, right? And so she, uh, she asked me, she goes, sir, is there any way that you could try to, to push that thing down a little bit more? Like, is there any way that you could tighten that uh, any better? And so I reach up and I grab those shoulder things and I'm giving them the business, man. I mean, I'm trying to pull them down with everything that I've got, but um, still nothing's happening. But while I'm pulling down, while I'm tugging on these shoulder steps, the ride just starts going. Like we start moving and the safety lady, she looks at me and she is very frightened and she looks back at the guy who is working the desk and I hear her, she looks and she goes, no, no, no. And I'm thinking, man, this can't be, this can't be good. And so we just start moving and I'm holding on to these straps for, for dear life and I ride by the guy who's the controller guy and uh, he looks at me and he just gives me a thumbs up and he goes, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. <laughs> now in that moment I realized I was, I was getting mixed signals, you know, and so uh, I, I found myself uh, pretty frightened, thought I might die. And, uh, and when I look back on that day and that uh, experience at Dollywood, and I think about why uh, the ride started before I felt safe, that remains a mystery of mine. That's a true story. I mean, that really did happen. Now... I share that story with you because I think it actually paints for us a pretty accurate picture of the state of the world as it now is. I think um, uh, that story can help us get to the root of some of the anxiety that we're feeling and experiencing in the world today. I mean, when it comes to the coronavirus, it feels like we're still and have for a lot of months been getting a lot of mixed signals. Now, the good thing is, it seems like in a lot of ways, things are sort of starting to get back to normal, like attendance at churches are, are going up, at least attendance in, in, in person. People are starting to show back up. A lot of businesses have moved back on site and uh, away from just the virtual, the, the Zoom stuff. And then just in the last couple of weeks, many of us have sent our kids back to school. But uh, for months, the message we have all heard has been no no, no. Like it's been, stay home. It's not safe. Do not go out in public. If you go out in public, you're putting yourself at risk and you're putting uh, other people at risk. And then all of a sudden, within the last couple of weeks, we have been like the controller of the ride at Dollywood, uh, looking at our kids and giving them a thumbs up and being like, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. Go back, go back to school. You'll, I'm sure that it'll be all right. And what I need you to understand is, uh, one, it will be fine, doesn't mentally eradicate six months of no, no, no's. You understand what I'm saying? Now to me, it doesn't matter where you, what your political stance is, it doesn't matter even when it comes to how you feel about the virus itself and the severity of it, but surely you can see how the combination of those things could be a recipe uh, for stress, uh, a recipe for anxiety, both for us and for our kids. 
And that's the reason that I would like to ask you this morning, just at the outset of this sermon, before we dig into the Word really much at all, I'm just asking you as one of your pastors in this season to do everything that you can uh, to show people grace upon grace. Like, show leaders grace. Show teachers grace. Show your kids grace. Show your friends grace. Show yourselves grace. Because the reality is, there's, no matter what, what happens in the, in the foreseeable future, anxiety, fear, stress, all those ingredients are prevalent. They're here, and they're going to be here. It is our job as the church of Christ to ensure that there's also a lot of grace being thrown in with that mix. It's our job to make sure that there's also a lot of grace being thrown in with those ingredients. It is, my friends, all about grace upon grace. And grace is what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about uh, a grace that shocks, and I want to talk to you about a grace that sustains. So what do I mean by a grace that shocks? The first time a human being experiences the grace of a holy God, it is a shock to their system. Because biblical grace doesn't make sense. It is incomprehensible. The first taste of it seems too good to be true. Grace is getting heaven when you deserve hell. Grace is being forgiven when you should have been judged. Grace is being set free when you should have been imprisoned. The Bible tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, Jesus didn't wait for you to get better. He died to make you better. And that is grace. In World War II, when many of the prisoners of war were set free, like the Jews are being freed from uh, their concentration camps by the Allied forces. You know, you've seen pictures of, of people at this time, of these prisoners, and their bodies were completely destroyed. I mean, they uh, were starved, they were skin and bones, they were struggling to function. And the soldiers who came in and set them free, they wanted to be of service to them. And they saw their hunger and they wanted to do something to try to satisfy their pain. And so a lot of these soldiers had some kind of sweet goods in their bags. Like they had candy bars, they had things like that, things that they had for them. And so they were sharing with them whatever they had and they thought they were helping. Um, but what happened was uh, a lot of these POWs, their body had been so destroyed by their digestive system, so destroyed by starvation, that when they took the first bites of those candy bars, they couldn't take it. It ultimately ended up killing a lot of them. Their bodies couldn't handle it. It was like it was that taste of sugar. They couldn't digest it. It was too, it was too sweet for them. Their bodies weren't prepared for it. Church, so it is with grace. After years of living according to the flesh, after years of living in sin, after years of living for ourselves, after years of being starved for that which is holy, to encounter God's grace is to encounter a force that our bodies aren't prepared to reckon with. When it comes to our first taste of grace, it is too sweet. 
It's too good. It's too holy. It's too pure. We can't handle it. It is grace that puts us in the grave, and it is grace that pulls us out of it. Do you hear me? It is grace that puts us in the grave, and it is grace that pulls us out of it. You know, Jesus with his followers, he talked often about, uh, he used the analogy of being born again. Particularly talking to Nicodemus in, uh, in John chapter 3, uh, he tells Nicodemus, if a person wants to see the kingdom of God, they must be born again. But church, do you realize that for a person to be born again, they must first die? Now, a lot of times we don't want to think about it like that. Like we like the idea of we want there to be a new us without having to give up the old us. We want the new without having to let go of the old, but that is not how it works. This is how I think it works. We come to God in our despair. We own our sin. He sets us free. And then in Christ, he hands out his grace to us like it is candy, but it's too sweet on our lips. Our flesh, at the beginning, isn't prepared for such an influx of the Spirit, and so the old us dies. But even as the old us is dying, something new in us is being born. Romans 6, 8 says that we must die with Christ to be made alive with Him. Church, I believe that it was grace that sent Jesus to the cross, and I believe that it was grace that raised Jesus from the dead. And I believe that it is grace that will put us into the grave. And I believe that it is grace that will pull us out of it. Grace first shocks us, and then it saves us. Do you understand what I'm saying? We first have to be shocked by grace so that we then might be saved by grace. How many of you, when you look at your lives, can honestly look back on your history and remember a time when you found yourself completely overwhelmed by the grace of God? Raise your hand. I want to know. Like how many, like you look back on your story and there's just, you remember a moment that you're like, I was completely, I was completely overwhelmed by just how good God's grace is. To get to the garden of God's grace, we have to be willing to walk through the valley of our sin. To get to the garden of God's grace, we have to be willing to walk through the valley of our sin. Desperation is the only prerequisite of salvation. That's it. This is what I mean. If you want to be shocked by God's grace today, if you want to fight like if you never have before and you decide today's the day, I want to be shocked by the grace of God, it is not a complicated process. All you have to do is take an honest assessment of your life. All you have to do is look in the mirror and see yourself as you really are. Think about your past. Think about the mistakes that you've made. Think about the, the, your failures. Think about the times that you knew the right thing to do and you did something different. Think about all the wreckage in your life. Think about all the people that you've hurt. If you want to be shocked by God's grace, you have to stop measuring your holiness over and against other sinners and stop measuring it against Jesus. Because when you look out at everybody else, you think, oh, I look pretty good. But man, when you measure yourself up against Jesus and the cross and a perfect Savior, then you begin to see your issues. Then you begin to be able to see your struggles. And awareness of sin leads us to an appreciation of the cross. The more aware we become, this isn't in my notes, but it is something that I found really interesting this week. I think it's in 1 Timothy chapter, no, I think it's 1 Timothy 1. Paul's writing to Timothy, and it's the text where Paul says, 
2, Timothy's talking about the salvation of of God, and Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. Y'all know this text, right? We've talked about it before. And the thing that I found interesting about that is I was reading in a commentary, and one of the commentaries was talking about how when we talk about that verse, we always like to talk about it in past tense. Like when Paul refers to himself, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. We like to say, oh, you know, Paul's talking about, do you remember how he used to be? Because he used to kill Christians. He used to persecute and all those things. We go, it's about his story. But the person who's writing this commentary said, no, that's not what Paul's talking about. Because Paul doesn't say, I was the worst of sinners. He said, I am the chief of sinners. So the same guy that wrote half of the New Testament, there is a connection between how deep we are willing to be shocked by our sin and then how much we will be shocked by the goodness and grace of God. Forgiveness will never seem like a whole lot to you if you don't think you have anything to be forgiven for. Grace isn't going to seem like a whole lot to you if you don't think that you need the grace of God. I think maybe if God were here today, he might say something like this to you. And this comes from Kyle Eidelman's book, Grace is Greater. Maybe you'd say this. He says, your short temper keeps everyone around you on edge. And bitterness towards you is growing in your family. Your drinking has gotten out of control. It's affecting a lot more people than just you. Your porn problem is killing any chance of intimacy you have in your marriage. Your flirting is leading you down a path that will ultimately devastate your family. You're allowing your heart to fall for a person who's causing you to fall away from me. You're going deeper in debt to feel better about yourself, but the water out of that well isn't going to satisfy you. Your self-righteous and legalistic spirit is causing the people at your job to avoid you. Your judgmental attitude and your harsh tone are costing you relationally with your kids and your grandkids. Church, we must acknowledge our sin so that we might be shocked by God's grace and saved by his love. We must acknowledge our sin so that we can be shocked by God's grace and then saved by his love. There is a grace that shocks. And if you've never experienced it before, I'm praying that it would wash over you at some point today. There's a grace that shocks. There's also a grace that sustains. I want to talk to you now about the grace that sustains. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, we're told that grace provides us with certain things. Like that Ephesians 2 text, that's the text that we opened up with. And there are in that text three with statements. It says that because of grace, we receive three things. The first one it says is, we are made alive with Christ. Then the second one, it says we are, because of grace, we are raised up with Christ. And the third one, it says because of grace, we are now seated with Christ. So it is alive with, raised with, and seated with. Man, I feel like we've already talked about those first two. We talk about how grace puts us in the grave and pulls us out of it. It makes us alive and it raises us up. I think we've already discussed those. But the one that I want to talk about with you now is where it talks about what it means to be seated with Christ. As, uh, as most of you know, uh, at least if you've been around this place for the last uh, several years, at any point, you know, I have a, I have a really bad right knee. Uh, to the point that I've had a couple of surgeries on it. I was playing basketball here um, three or four years ago, and right over there, uh, took a shot to the knee, tore my ACL, had my first surgery. Came out of my first surgery, it didn't go so, so 
great. I mean, I was still in pain, still struggling after. I ended up having a second uh, surgery. And then e- even still, like even since the second one, I've just, it's never, I've never felt exactly right about it. Uh, I go to KOC, and uh, my doctor is a guy named Dr. Betcher, and uh, he's been really good to me over the years. I mean, he really has. Uh, every time I have a problem, he, uh, he listens to it. He tries to help me. He's tried to help me work through it. Like, I just I vouch for him as a, as a good surgeon, as a, uh, as a good doctor. Um, but this past Tuesday night, uh, during the middle of the night, uh, I woke up, and uh, my knee was throbbing. I mean, it was hurting to the point that I couldn't sleep. And I took some medicine. Medicine didn't work. And it ended up being up most of the night on Tuesday night. And so uh, I woke up Wednesday morning, and I thought, okay, I'm going to try to call KOC, see if I can get an appointment to, uh, I'd love to get a cortisone shot because I just don't want to hurt. And so uh, I call the appointment line, and first thing in the morning, and the lady says, Mr. Tharp, what's going on with you? I go, hey, this is what's happening. Um, my leg's hurting. I'd love to get a shot. I'd like to be seen. And she goes, okay, hold for a second. And so she comes back and she says, uh, Mr. Tharp, I'm sorry, but I can't schedule an appointment for you right now because uh, your information, like you've been flagged, it seems like uh, you still owe us some money. And so before I can get you in to see somebody, you're going to have to pay pay your bill. And so she gives me the line to call uh, to the business office. Now, you got to understand that over the course of the last three or four years, uh, I've paid to KOC somewhere around $10,000 for the surgeries that I've had and the care that I've received. And I've never missed a payment to the point that uh, I took out loans against my retirement to be able to pay for both surgeries up front. And so when she says I'm missing, I'm thinking, okay, so I call and uh, get the business office, and I talk to a really nice lady there, and I'm pretty furious. And the lady says, uh, I say, well, how much do I owe? And she goes, uh, you owe $82.22. And so I pay it because I'm hurting, and I think I just need, I just want to be seen. So I pay the money, I call back, and I end up getting an appointment. But what I need you to understand, church, is that I was in pain and for $82, they weren't gonna, they weren't gonna help me. That, my friends, is the way of the world. Before anybody wants to help us in this world with our pain, we have to pay our debts. But that is not the way of the cross. That is not the way of Jesus. That is not the way of heaven. The, the message of the gospel is Jesus has already paid your debts so that he can take care of your pain. And now, because of grace, you are seated at the table with him. He's right next to you. There is no $82 preventing you from being next to the great physician. Whatever pain it is, he knows your pain before you know it. He knows your needs before you know it. And he is right beside you. There is, if you know God, By way of Jesus, there is nothing that can separate you from his presence, from his love. You have been made alive with him, raised up with him, and now you are seated with him. You know, I've been walking with Jesus for now for some 30 years, almost 30 years. And in that time, one of my favorite things about walking with him has been learning about the fluid nature of his grace. 
And this is what I mean by that. This is what I mean when I'm talking about a grace that sustains, I'm talking about this fluid nature. I'm talking about just how well equipped the grace of God is to adjust to our circumstances and to our situation. How grace will mold and move. How the grace of God will meet us right where we are. Now the Bible tells us that God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. And that is true. I'm not talking about God himself. I'm talking about the way his grace shifts. It's like he knows our love languages. And whatever it is that you need, whatever part of you needs to be tapped into, his grace is fully equipped to tap into that part of you. It is fluid. There's this great verse, it's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, where the Apostle Paul was writing, and he's quoting Jesus. And you know the verse. He says, uh, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, as I was studying this week, I wanted to read that verse in a bunch of different translations, and I came to one that I want to share with you. This uh, is from the Passion, this is the Passion Translation of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, and this is how the text reads. It says, my grace is always more than enough for you, and my power finds its full expression through your weakness. Did you hear that, church? This is Jesus saying over all of you, saying, my grace is always more than enough for you. Regardless of circumstance, regardless of situation, my grace is always more than enough. Byron, if you would put the list up. God's grace is always more than enough for you, more than your fear, more than your failures, more than your mistakes, more than your doubt, more than your pain, more than your heartbreak, more than your loss, more than your sin, more than your past, more than your brokenness, more than your whatever you need, fill in the blank. The grace of God is more than enough for you in every single way. Now I'm going to ask my friend Byron just to leave that up there for a minute. And I want you to look at it, and I want you, even while it's up on the screen, you don't have to pay attention to me. I want you to be listening to the Holy Spirit, and I want you to ask God to say, uh, by the Spirit, you say, God, what does my spirit need right now? What do I need from you? How do I need, in, in what area of my life do I need to know that your grace is sufficient? In what area of my life do I need to know that your grace is more than enough for me. Ask him and see if by way of the Spirit, one of those doesn't get highlighted for you. Or a couple of them. Just do it now. Don't focus on me. Focus on the screen. And here's the crazy thing about that list. What you need right now may not be what you need two weeks from now. And what you need two weeks from now may not be what you need two years from now. But His grace will always be more than enough. And you are always, from this point on, seated at the table with Him. And His grace is fluid. So whatever area it is that you need him to tap into, he knows you better than you know yourself. He will tap into that area. His grace can become that for you. It is always more than enough. There is a grace that shocks, and there is a grace that sustains. I have one last thought for you, and then I'm done. 
So the beginning of January uh, this year, I decided that I wanted to try to read through the whole Bible in a month. Um, there was a guy who put out the challenge right at the first of the year, and uh, it was called The Shred, and it was like read through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, in 30 days. And so uh, that's what I did. Uh, I started it, I think, on January 6th or something like that, and I read through the whole thing in, uh, in 28 days. It, uh, it took me, I was reading for about an hour and a half a day or two hours a day or something like that. I just didn't, in that time, I didn't read anything else. All I focused on was... Uh, was God's word and if it sounds like I'm bragging to you about that maybe I am okay y'all can deal with it um, but you do it and then you can brag back to me um, but I will tell you that for me um, it was pretty awesome because in like my theological training I was kind of trained to read through the Bible real slow you know to read through text over and over again and so there was something uh, different about seeing the full story about just seeing it all unfold. I mean, in one day, you're going from, you know, you're skipping full, full books. But there was one story in the 28 days that I'm doing this, there was only one time that I found myself completely, that, that a story completely broke me or brought me to tears. And, uh, and I don't exactly know why it was this one, and it might come as a surprise to you, but it happened really early on in that journey, and it was when I came to... Uh, Genesis chapter 33. So it was one of the first, the first uh, days that I was doing the reading. Uh, maybe some of you will know the story in Genesis chapter 33 is the story of Jacob and Esau. And uh, maybe you'll remember that Jacob, for the most part, was just, uh, he was a scoundrel to his brother. I mean, every way that he could do Esau wrong, he did him wrong. He stole his birthright. He took everything that should have been Esau's, and he took it for himself. And then he went on the run, and he married a couple of different people, and he built his own kingdom, and a lot of years had passed. And what we're reading when you get to Genesis 33 is that uh, Jacob had decided that he was going to go home. He decided that he was going to go, and he hadn't seen his brother Esau in years. And so he sets out on that journey. If you'll remember in the story, this is the point in the story when Jacob wrestles with God or he wrestles with the angel, and that's because he's so frightened about what he might encounter when he gets to his brother. And in the story, it says that as the, the caravan begins to get close to home, like as he begins to get close to Esau, he starts sending gifts and cows and stuff like up in the front of the line because if Esau's mad, he's trying to appease his anger. He wants him to have some stuff and he's like, tell him it's all for him, whatever he needs because he's afraid, I think, that Esau is going to try to hurt him. But what happens, and to me, it, it destroyed me when I was reading through the text, is that the Bible says that Jacob gets to Esau and that Esau embraces him and then they weep together. And Esau asked him, he looks at all the stuff and he goes, where did he, he's like, who, who are these people? He's like, are these your wives? Are these your kids? Are this your stuff? And Jacob's like, well, I mean, some of it's mine, but some of it was, was meant for you if you need it, if you're mad. And Esau's like, I don't, I'm fine. He's like, God's been good. I have the things that, that, that I need. I, I'm, doing just, I'm doing okay. And, they embrace. and it is this beautiful moment of exceptional grace. I mean, I think it paints a picture for us. I think it is an Old Testament version of that beautiful prodigal son story that we see later on. But the thing that really got me as I'm reading through that story is there's one little verse, and I think it might be Genesis 33 verse 2, but don't quote me on that because I could be missing it. And that one verse tells us that at the back of that caravan... There were two people, 
One was one of Jacob's wives, and the other was his son, Joseph. Now, what you'll remember about Joseph is, years after Jacob is long gone, Joseph also gets betrayed by his brothers. They sell him into slavery. Every bad break that a person could get, Joseph hits that bad break. And then ultimately, though, he ends up being a leader in Pharaoh's court, and his brothers come to him in need. And what does he do, church? He feeds them. He takes care of his family. He shows them incredible grace. Why? Because that's what had been modeled for him. Because he had been in the back of the caravan when they'd walked up on Esau. He had seen what incredible grace looks like in action. And what I'm trying to tell you today, church, is is that when it comes to this season of difficulty, of fear, of anxiousness, of, of stress, of all the things that we feel, the young people are watching us. And they're trying to see what we're going to do with it. And it's my hope that when they look at our lives, and that when they look at the lives of our church, that what they see is that they'll find that we have been a people who have been shocked by God's grace, sustained by His grace, and a people who have consistently shown each other grace upon grace upon grace. Because what we do now, I think, can set the stage for generational grace, generational blessing, or generational curse. So let's do our part to make sure we infuse grace in the mix. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. God, I'm grateful for your word. I am most certainly grateful for your grace. Move in our midst. There's somebody in this place today that needs to be shocked by your goodness, shocked by your love. I pray that you would give somebody here an honest assessment of the sin in their lives, and then you would show them the power and beauty of the cross, and they'd be moved by it. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.